0: Psalm 26. Tonight we continue in our <clears throat> study through the Psalms, the Hebrew word Tehillim means to praise God or praises. And this is really the, the Jewish song book. It is part of a group of books in the Old Testament called the books of wisdom or, or the, uh, the books of poetry. And because of that, you find a lot of poetic kind of Hebrew practices, repetition, um, contrast, not so much rhymes like we would, you know, roses are red, violets are blue kind of uh, poetry, but um, Hebrew poetry is very, you know, interested in contrast, so that one set against the other, and or a repetition, which is kind of like an exclamation point in English. From the book of Job through the Song of Solomon, these are the poetic or the wisdom books before we then get to uh, both the major and the minor prophets, not minor because they're smaller oftentimes, just because... Uh, There's more of them, and uh, they played a maybe less significant role as far as on the the scene for a long period of time. But for now, we're in the Psalms, as you can tell, and I I really think that the Psalms do best when you spend time with them alone. At best, I think we can go through the Psalms and give you the topics and and, and encourage you in, in what the Lord has written through these different folks who have written the Psalms But I think that you gain the most from them by spending time with them because at least for the book of Psalms, it is almost as if you are listening into the prayer life of another. You sit and listen as they sit and pray. You watch them squirm when things get tough and be afraid when things get hard and and panic when things don't work out. And you, you, in the comfortableness of your own living room or in church, you know, your Bible, you get to kind of watch from afar. But at the same time, because of that insight that God gives you, you are enabled to be able to, with them, trust the Lord when things get tough, walk with God each step of the way. You know, David has about 41 or so chapters of his life written down in the Bible. That's a lot. He gets a lot of coverage. In fact, I think First Samuel, well, probably 15 or 16, he starts, and he goes all the way to his death, Second Kings 1. So in that big group of historical books, you know, it becomes the, the, the ground where David wrote nearly half of these Psalms. And um, so we will go through an attempt to challenge you, and we have the background for the Psalms. I think we can help you at least get some uh, historical perspective on them. But they do best if you spend some time with them on your own. I, I tend to try to read one every day and try to think about it during the day. Sometimes they're really long and you have to pick a portion out, but they're usually fairly short. So. It can take you all of five minutes, you know, but you spend time with them each day. I think the Lord can really speak to you through them. And I hope that Sunday night it just whets your appetite, because really that's, um, I think, what the Psalms are intended to be. So tonight, 26 through 30, these are all still from David's pen and David's heart. We are able to determine, I think, the, the setting of Psalm 28 and 30 rather clearly. Um, The rest of them have to stand on their own because we have no indication whatsoever as to where when they might have been written. But we'll start with verse 26, and for me, it's good to get a topic for each one just to be able to remember it. Um, I think the topic is found in verse 12 of chapter 26, uh, and in verse 1, David says in verse 1, "My feet don't slip," and in verse 12, he says, "I'm standing on a level place." So. I think here's a good psalm that'll help you along your journey in life to walk on an even plane with God. And a couple of things that David starts with. Number one in verse one and two, if your life is open before the Lord, that will help. He says in verse one, vindicate me, Lord, I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord and I shall not slip and examine me, Lord, prove me and try my mind and my heart. So an open life is, is a great asset to spiritual growth. You know, if you're trying to goof with God a lot and trying to slip one over on him and, or pretend with others, it really doesn't do you much good. I had a guy one time say to me, you don't act much like a pastor. And he's right. But I don't know if I would be happy trying to act like that. You know, I'm not sure that could be, I could do it. I could pretend I could do like this and vow and wow. And I don't know how you do it, but I could do it. I'm sure I could practice. I would rather just be me, you know, and if God can bless my life, not be me in the sense of being an idiot, that would be really me, but (laughs) me in the sense of, you know, this is who I am, and this is what I've learned, and this is what I haven't learned, and this is what I'm good at, and this is what I'm not so good at. And open life brings great help to you spiritually, because you can then measure, I think, the growth. The word vindicate means judge, judge me. And we cover this a lot, and David goes through this from time to time, you know, but He wants God to look at his life and have him examine his mind and examine his heart and prove where he is because he believes he's done his best. I've walked in my integrity. It's not a bragging kind of position of David's because he says plenty of times, you know, that his dependency is upon God. But it is a declaration that I've tried my best. And I think that's real helpful. You know, I've tried my best. I've done my best in seeking to be faithful to God. I don't always do so well but I'm done my best. And I think there's there's a tremendous delight to be found in praying with a God who sees everything when you can be confident that he's going to be pleased with what he sees because you've done your best. And that's really all God requires. Nothing more than that, you know. I run into Christians sometimes who struggle with, I hope I've done enough. I hope I've been all right. You know, they're always examining themselves almost to the point where, you know, it, it just becomes destructive. I think you just do your best. Do your best. God isn't interested in more than that ever, you know? And David is able to pray. I, I remember reading in 1 John chapter 3, John's 90 years old and he's, he's seen life, you know, and he's in the third generation of believers. And he says, if your heart condemns you, then God is still greater than your heart. He knows all things. In other words, even when you're hard on yourself, God still sees the truth. But the next verse says, uh, 1 John 3, 21, if our hearts condemn us not, then we can have confidence towards God. So, you know, to have that open life before God and to be able to, you know, be happy with what God has done in your life, to, to be honest with what you still need work on, to not try to put on airs. David, in this, at least this psalm, was very comfortable seeking God having done his best. Not many people would like to put their line on, uh, life on the line like that in prayer. But if you're giving it your best, you certainly can. And, and there's something to be said for having, you know, a prayer life with a clear conscience. David thought if he trusted in the Lord, he wouldn't slip. And the word means just that, to backslide or to fall. And he will mention it, like I said back in verse 12 again. If my feet stand on on, on a level ground, I'm not liable to trip. So here, here's, here's something that can help you in your life. <laughs> Be open with the Lord. Be honest with yourself. Have an open life. Examine me, David says here in verse two. Put me to the test. I got pretty good grades in school. I got a full scholarship to college. And I did okay in most classes, but I was great at math. So when the math teacher would, you know, say we're having a test, I would say, bring it on. I don't care what you got figured out. I got it right. And I had great confidence, almost cocky kind of confidence for math. When I got to, you know, college and had to take organic chemistry, oh, not so much. But the math thing was okay, you know, the quantitative analysis, that was good for me. It seemed to come easy. I like when David says to the Lord, all right, check me out, look me up and down, you know, check everything I'm thinking, everything I'm doing. I'm doing my best. That's a a great place to start, isn't it? Prove me is a word for smelting gold or for you know, purifying a substance or finding the genuineness of something, seeing if it's for real or not. Check me out, Lord. Whatever it takes, try my mind. Probe into my very thoughts and feelings to the core of my being. Be an open book for the Lord to see. He sees anyway. It's a good place to start. Secondly, along with an open life, seek to have an obedient life. David writes, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. Love is by far the greatest motivator in the world. Love will have you do what fear won't, hatred won't, anger won't, gain can't. Love just pushes you the extra mile, doesn't it? That's what love does. And David, in his open life before the Lord, found himself motivated by God's loving kindness, and it kept him walking in God's truth or doing that which God wanted. Communion is good for that. It reminds you of God's love. And if you'll keep that in mind, then you'll find yourself more prone to daily walk with God's goodness and in his grace because he loves me so much. I have an open life, but then I have an obedient life because I see his love. Thirdly, I should have an overcoming life. David said, I have not sat, verse four, with idolatrous mortals, (laughs) What a great title, Idolatrous Mortals. Nor will I go in with the hypocrites, and I have hated the assembly of the evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. An obedient life, then an overcoming life, which consists of separating myself from the world. Now, maybe that's easier said than done, or maybe that's way too obvious, and you know that already. But David did not want to spend his days with hypocrites who say one thing and do another, who, you know, have a heading that's in the wrong direction, who live evil deeds, who support wicked things. He can't agree with them. There, there's no fellowship there. I, I've often said to you, the world is a place you go to minister. The church is a place you go to have fellowship. And it does not change from day to day. You know, the, the body of Christ, that's where you find friendship and, and, and husbands and wives and, and, and folks you can hang out with. In the world, you find people who are lost, who need to hear about who Jesus is and through your life and by your word. So there is much to be said for the kind of friends you choose, the alliances you put yourself into, the allegiances and the associations and the partnerships you make. I mean, I think the Bible has clear direction for us about dating and marriage and business relationship and close friends because God wants to protect you. So David said, my life is open, my my heart is obedient, and my my life is to be overcoming because I'm gonna surround myself with folks who are going in the same direction I have, and in the same direction that God would have me to go. You know, the only sensible thing that you can do with the world is to separate yourself from it. That's really, not that you shouldn't be in the world to be a witness, but when it comes to rest and joy and peace and finding fulfillment, that's no place to go, you know. When 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 Potiphar's wife set her eyes on J- Joseph, he, all he could do was just run, get away, <laughs> get away, separated from the world. And then verse six, separated unto God. I will wash my hands in innocence, and then I'll go before you or, or about your altar, O Lord. I'm going to show up for worship, having my hands cleansed from the world. I've been sanctified. You know, the negative side is separated. The positive side is set apart, not just away from the world, but deliberately occupied with God and his people. Know the world, yes, to the Lord, (laughs) and yes, to the people of God. And I think there is a great benefit to cutting off godless friendships and partnerships to discover that you have a great friend in Jesus. You know, there's a danger in just spending so much time in the world that you no longer, you know, uh, have that light shining in you. I remember talking to one of the detectives at the sheriff department years ago who worked in narcotics undercover for years. And he finally quit because he said, I was becoming way too much like the guys I was looking to arrest. Well, that can happen to you as a Christian. You spend enough time in the world and you're gonna look just like the world you're looking to reach. David said, my life is open, my life is obedient and I'm overcoming because I've separated myself from the world and onto the Lord. And then verse seven and eight, an overflowing life. See, I've got them all with O's. You can't forget them. Verse 7, that I might proclaim <clears throat> with the voice of thanksgiving to tell of all of your wondrous works. And Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Now, it goes right along with what we just said. Praise the Lord, proclaim his word, pursue his glory. That's your life. I have fellowship with God. I go out to the world to proclaim his word with an innocent heart and with clean hands. And then I gather so that I might honor God in the place where his glory dwells. There really is to me no greater joy than having the satisfaction of knowing you're doing what God wants. And if you're lucky enough and blessed enough to know you're in a place that God wants you to be, there's nothing that can satisfy you more. And if you're in the wrong place, there's nothing that can satisfy you less. I mean, David knew that he was where God wanted him to be. And it makes you shout aloud with praise, you know, an overflowing kind of a life. Praising the Lord, proclaiming his word, pursuing his glory. That's all David cared about. You know, the Nile River in Egypt every year comes thundering out of the Ethiopian mountains. And the people who live in the delta, and there are millions of them, determine what kind of a life they're going to have that year by how much the river overflows its banks. The greater the overflow, the better chance of crops in this very dry and arid region. So they long for an overflowing river. God wants an overflowing life. And, and to the degree that the Lord overflows your life, people around you get fed and blessed and ministered to. And so David, he, he goes out, he, he worships, his life is overflowing longing for God's fellowship, wanting to hang around where God dwells. You know, I've often thought about that coming to church. And I know you can't see it with your natural eye, but I think his glory is often best seen among his own. You know, when you love to go to church and you love to come to fellowship and you love to study your Bible, that's a pretty good sign of the heart that's committed. If someone's got to tell you to go to church or you come when it's convenient or you don't have anything else to do or whenever it kind of suits you and there's never any kind of, you know, d- d- drive in the heart to make that the first thing. Um, it might not speak of a heart that's so in love with God. But, but notice what David says in verse 8. I just long to be where you're glorious. I just love the habitation of your house. I just love to hang around with your people. I've separated myself from the world. I've longed to be with your people. Open life, obedient life, overcoming life, overflowing life. Finally, obstructed life. Verse 9. Oh, maybe not finally. Maybe we'll have one more. Do not gather my soul with the sinners. Don't gather my life with bloodthirsty men. In whose hands is a sinister scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. David didn't want to be judged with or caught up with or found with those who were missing the mark. And he asks the Lord to obstruct his steps. Keep me from them. That's a good prayer, isn't it? Keep me out of those places, I'll get in trouble. Keep me from those harmful influences. Boy, there's enough of him in the world. I want a life that's obstructed when it comes to the world. And finally then, verse 11, an ordered walk. Notice, as for me, I'm going to walk in my integrity. I'm going to do my best. So redeem me. Be merciful to me. For my foot stands in an even place in the congregations. I'm going to bless the Lord. I'm staying real close to home. I'm going to stay real close. Redeem me. Be merciful to me. I'll do my best. But I want my feet standing in an even place amongst the saints where God is blessed. Great prayer. Six. Are there six? Okay, you got them written down. Well, then you know what they are. Six O's to help you stand in life's journey. Psalm 27, David, in essence, finds himself in two different situations, which is kind of interesting. He goes from the highland of faith to the lowland of fear in one verse. And, you know, I used to say, gosh, how can you do that? Oh, you can do that. You can be blessed in here and then go outside and someone cuts you off on the street and all of a sudden the joy is gone, you know, and try it in the same prayer. Oh, Lord, that was good tonight. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you're gone. You know, it takes about a minute. So David, at some point in his life, finds himself on his knees seeking to stand in faith, and we get to listen into his prayer. But he, he goes from, from great hopefulness to great fear, and then back to hopeless hopefulness again. It sounds a lot like us, huh? We, we kind of waver from time to time. Verse one, David says, the Lord is my light. He's my salvation. Who? of or whom shall I fear and the Lord is the strength of my life of whom shall I be afraid and when the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh my enemies my foes they stumbled they fell even if an army may encamp against me my heart won't fear and though war could rise up against me in this I will be confident david had some real intelligent kind of outlooks in delighting in the lord that you find in the psalms in fact he oftentimes begins his prayer, not with the passing fad of emotion, but rather with a rehearsal of his personal dealings with God, both past and present. And you will find in a lot of David's prayers that he, he stops to remind himself that, that God has done these great things. He will still do them. He has promised to do them. Oh, yeah, let me tell you now what's bothering me. But at least he starts with a, a kind of an intelligent Uh, Notice even in verse 27, the personal pronouns there uh, in verse 1. The Lord is my salvation, my light. Who shall I fear? He's the strength of my life. So it's a personal pronoun. And David had tested the Lord and he had never found him lacking. Experience is really helpful for spiritual growth, isn't it? I mean, if you can learn from what God is doing, um, you'll learn you learn about God's love. you learn about God's patience. You'll learn about God's plans when they're not yours. You know, the, the, the prodigal son, as far away as he went, remembered how it used to be at home, and that drove him home. He hoped he could reclaim some of it, maybe just as a servant, but he was pretty sure that, that he could improve his lot from the pig slop, you know, to the servant status. And, and when David finds himself under pressure... He always goes back in confidence to the personal experiences he's had with God. Not what someone else has gone through, but what he has seen, what he has remembered, what what he has learned. And so he says in verse 2 and 3, and this is pretty confident. You know, I don't care if a war starts against me. I'm not going to be afraid. I don't care if an encampment comes against me. I'm not going to fear. I don't care if it's the enemy. I'm not going to stumble. God's with me. He's my light, my salvation, my strength. The wicked got nothing on me. Great hopefulness. He then says to the Lord, I just want this one thing or one thing I've desired to the Lord. This is what I'm going to seek. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I want to behold the beauty of the Lord and I want to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he'll hide me in his pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle. He'll hide me and set me high upon a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies all around me and therefore I'll offer sacrifices of joy In his tabernacle and sing yes i will sing praises to the lord so david's you know heart is is back on display here and and he'll get to his problem here in a minute but his great desire was fellowship with god that was the passion of his life is that your passion tonight to behold his beauty and inquire of him that's that's what you want you want a vision of god and his goodness I think one word from the Lord, one side of his glory, you're sold out. You know, you can go through the motions until you see him. And then there's really no place else you want to be. So David just longed for this. And if this happened to have been written when he was running from Saul, and those were a lot of years. And he wrote a lot of Psalms then. um, This would have been a longing to look by faith to that place in Shiloh where the tent of God's meeting stood. David had been chased out of town. He was on his, out of, out of town, away from the temple, or if you will, the tabernacle, for seven and a half years. I just want to have fellowship in the the tabernacle. One day I hope to sit where, you know, we're supposed to sit and worship and and to gather where the people are supposed to gather. And it would have been for him a tremendous desire to go back to fellowship, if you will, because he had been driven from it. But in any event, he knew God would take care of him. So he uses words like, Lord will hide me and help me and and will cause me to just sing praises as I find my head lifted above my enemies. I'm going to, with joy, praise the Lord. Triumphant faith. And then he says, verse 7, So hear, Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy upon me, answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said, your face, Lord, I'll seek. And don't hide your face from me, and don't turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Now don't leave me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. For when my mother and father forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. It is always, it seems that fear lives right next door to faith. Six verses of great confidence only to hear him say, don't leave me now. (laughs) Don't give up on me now. Don't pull back now. You you said seek. I'm seeking. Where are you? I've done my part. I've, I've acted according to what you've said. Help me. If my mother and father forsake me, you will not. We do know that when David was hiding in the Abdullam caves and Saul was getting closer and meaner, that David sent his mother and father to Moab so that they might hide where Saul couldn't get to them or if they couldn't get a hold of David, he was afraid for his parents' life. And he sent them to the king with a request for political asylum. First Samuel, I think, 21, 22, somewhere in there. Jesse's grandmother was from Moab, so they had family there. It would have been a homecoming of sorts. But the last we read of David's family was that they went there. And they died there, it appears. And they never had much more contact with David. I don't know if his mother and father resented him sending them off. We aren't told whether that was a good relationship or a bad one. But we have this insight in prayer. When my parents forsake me, you won't which is an interesting thing to say, unless there's some relative truth either for you or for someone you know to that. Um, Can I say for sure that it was with David? No, but he understood these feelings of being abandoned and forsaken when we thrive on being accepted and loved and David cries for God to stick with him. (laughs) You're supposed to be there when no one else will be. You're supposed to come through when no one else can. And when, you know, David was worried, He assured himself of God's promise, but he also said, you know, help me when I cry. Don't hide your face. Don't turn away. Don't be angry with me. Don't leave me. Don't forsake me. Because I guess the answer wasn't coming soon enough, and David was starting to draw the wrong conclusions. God is there always. When Israel came out of Egypt and marched through the wilderness, the Lord provided a rear guard so that the weary and the feeble and the stragglers would be fine. God protects the weakest. (laughs) not to mention the stronger. So David knew God would be there intellectually or even spiritually, but he wanted to see it in experience. And there is a difference between what I know and what I feel. (laughs) And sometimes my feelings kind of don't match up with faith. You know, they drag behind. And I think David was having a, a bit of feeling problems. So he cries out for God's help. And then he says, Lord, teach me your way. And here's that same Uh, Term that we read twice in the last psalm, lead me in a smooth path or a a level path or an easy path, unobstructed path, because of my enemies. Don't deliver me to the will of my adversaries. False witnesses have risen against me. They're breathing out violence. And I would have lost heart unless I would believed that I would see, future tense, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So there's the issue. My life has been very difficult. I've had to make lots of decisions because of my enemies. I want a smooth path. I want to find myself where you would want me to be. Smooth path because of my enemies. For, you know, when there's pressure, you do the wrong thing. When there's enemies, you do the wrong thing. You don't wait for God. You don't seek God. I need to see God, What you're going to do. They're lying about me. They are threatening violence against me. I need a, a walk through the minefield. And I think I'd have flipped out. I would have lost heart. I would have given up unless I had believed, unless I had believed that I would eventually see literally the goodness of God in the land of the living. In my life, I want to see the deliverance of God. I think that's how we all pray. If we don't really believe God's going to work, you can easily lose your hope. But because we know him, we pray with great hope. And so David concludes by saying, I will wait on the Lord and be of good courage. And he's going to strengthen my heart. So wait, I say on the Lord. To whom did he say? I think he's talking to himself. Talking to yourself is pretty good. You see a lot in the Psalms, by the way. You're not as crazy as you think you are. You know, biblical self-talk, it helps. Been praying, nothing yet. No matter. God will work. I'll wait. I'll wait. I got to wait. Where else can I go? I'm going to wait. Psalm 28 is is almost without doubt written, I think, during the time of David's son's rebellion, Absalom, when later on in David's life, he led a coup against his own father in the hopes of uh, unseating him. And um, he was angry with his father over the way he had dealt with uh, family matters and difficult ones at that. Uh, It broke David's heart. It led to Absalom's death. But this was one of the hardest times for David. I mean, he'd been a king for years, and he's, he's loading up the truck, you know, and moving out of town. So uh, I think that the prayer and then the result of the prayer of David seems to support that. It certainly would be the most dramatic and kind of difficult time in his life, in his older life, when this was written. Um, and it speaks about God's mighty power. But I think within the context of the prayer, it is probably was prayed by David as he was leaving town and then returning to it after the coup, you know, failed. Verse one says, "'To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. "'Do not be silent to me, lest, if you are silent to me, "'I become like those who go down to the pit.'" I mean, David's world, if this was the case, was falling apart. His beloved son had turned, a lot of people had rebelled, His best friends had switched sides. There was no one he could trust. Absalom was destined to be the next king. The earth shook, (laughs) and David looked for a rock to stand on. Be my rock. Be the Lord of my life and stability, or I'm as good as dead. I mean, he really needed the Lord to work. Don't be silent now, God. Don't be silent. Verse 2 Hear the voice of my supplication when I cry to you, and when I lift up my hands towards your holy sanctuary. David on the run could only by faith stretch out his hands towards Jerusalem, which was in the rearview mirror. And he reached back, not for his throne, but for God's throne. Do not take me away, verse 3, with the wicked, with the workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve. Because they don't regard the work of the Lord nor the operation of his hands, he shall destroy them, not build them up. David prayed that God might not uh, have David share the doom of these men who were, I think, exposing themselves to God's wrath because they were defiant to God's will. David had been made king by the Lord. David was sure with Saul that God had anointed Saul, and he said a couple of times, he's God's anointed, let God get rid of him, I won't. He felt the same way about himself. He called the wickedness of these people, their endeavors were wicked, their work of their hands didn't regard God in his ways. So deal with them, Lord, don't bless them, destroy them. By the way, you know, when you read this, there is the Old Testament law of an eye for an eye. But if you're frustrated with things, you let God work it out. Absalom did not. He went and took matters into his own hands. He ended up dying as a result. And then you have this kind of a new paragraph in verse 6, because the tone changes, and David began to rest. Blessed be the Lord. He has heard the voice of my supplication. He's my strength, my shield. My heart trusted in him, past tense, and I am helped, past tense. Therefore, My heart greatly rejoices and with my song, I will praise him. How did he know? Because God worked, God promised, God responded, God delivered him. The Lord is my, is their strength. He is the saving refuge of his anointed savior people. Bless your inheritance, shepherd them also, bear them up forever. And I I think that David, you know, I, I, my heart trusted past. I am helped present. I will praise future. And then he says, Lord, take care of the people. David's heart was always that of a shepherd, you know. Watch over the people. Let them find out that you can be their strength as well. Save them. Bless them. Shepherd them. Bear them up. Because the greatest fallout for this whole thing was the people got caught in the middle. And for the moment, you know, Absalom misled them. David doesn't lash out, he just prays. And I really think that's probably that prayer that can find itself during that very difficult time for David in his life. So, hanging on when that's all you can do. Psalm 29 is a really good example of uh, Hebrew poetry, especially from verses um, three through nine, where the repetition is used of the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, and to it then is added what the voice of the Lord means to those who know him and hear it. And David writes in this, you know, style of Hebrew poetic kind of utterances, building one upon the other and making a case for God's voice. So verse one, give ear or sorry, give unto the Lord, you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength to the Lord. Give him the glory that is due his name and worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Don't you like that phrase, the beauty of holiness? It, it, it literally says your life is the most attractive when you've separated yourself from God. You're most appealing when you're devoted to Christ. I think that's true. I think everyone who sees you would think that would be true. You know, your life is most drawing when we have been drawn into the Lord. So give him, give to the Lord glory and acknowledge his strength and, and the the glory that his name demands, and worship him in the beauty of a life that is set apart. And then he begins these series of comparisons. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God, or the God of glory, he thunders. He is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord will break the cedar and splinter the cedars of Lebanon. He can make them skip like calves Lebanon and Syrian, like a young wild ox, for the voice of the Lord divides the flame of fire, and the voice of the Lord will shake the wilderness and shake the wilderness of Kadesh, which, by the way, was the border into the promised land. The voice of the Lord will make the deer give birth and strip the forests bare, and in his temple, everyone says, glory. So God's power... (laughs) very picturesque, very poetic, but yet, you know, when God speaks, things happen, don't they? And so the Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever, and the Lord will give strength to his people and bless his people with peace. So give God your life, holy, worship in the beauty of holiness, because the God we serve is powerful Whatever he says goes, and at best we can gather in the temple and worship him and honor him and recognize that he will bless his people. It's nice to have a God who's powerful and then he's for you. The worst thing would be like a a strong God who hates you. Or a strong God who doesn't think anything about destroying you and everything around you. What could you do anyway? Fortunately, our God is a good God. It's interesting to watch the idol worshipers, you know, who, who gather these False gods of themselves, and they're always terrified of them. you got to bring them an offering. you got to keep them happy. you got to throw stuff in the water and bless yourself and cross yourself and, and do whatever it is got to do, you know, just to keep that God who's angry happy. But he's fine. Our God loves us. He just wants us to draw near him, to recognize who he is and worship him in the beauty of holiness. What a beautiful song. Imagine a powerful God interested in us, and not only interested, on our side. And then Psalm 30, our last psalm of the evening. You could entitle it, Joy Comes in the Morning. I will extol you, David writes, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. I have not let You have not let my foes to rejoice over me. Oh, Lord, my God, I've cried out to you and you've healed me and you've brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I shouldn't go down to the pit or literally to the grave or to death. You read there at the beginning, a song at the dedication of the house of David. David had been so blessed. You know, when he sat in his house and he was so in the big palace, he he had to, you know, try to make a deal with the Lord to let him build him a house. In fact, he had seen this little tent outside. He goes, man, doesn't seem right. I'm sitting here in this beautiful place. The Lord dwells out there in a tent, and you know the story. But notice that David says here, I want to extol the Lord. The the word means to to speak well of or to honor greatly. I want to speak well or, or lift up the Lord because God had delivered him seven and a half years of running, seven and a half more years of political division within Israel itself. Finally, after 15 years, David gets to be king over the whole land. And then he sits in the palace, and the people listen, and the armies win, and and the enemies have peace, and David is able to look around and say, man, you didn't allow my foes to run over me. When I cried out, you healed me, and it's the word for being healed from something that that made you ill, so some unspecified healing where he was close to death. There are many commentators who believe that David got very depressed and may even have um, contracted some physical illness as a result over his sin with Bathsheba in the year of trying to hide it. And there's certainly a lot of evidence for that in the historical books. David kind of disappears, and his boy Absalom has time to work the gates, you know, and win people to his side. And, um, but finally, the Lord obviously restored David. It could very well be that's what he was talking about here. He had been close to death through this thing, but God had delivered him, not only from his enemies, but from his own kind of plight, So I want to extol the Lord as he sits in that place of blessing. He says in verse four, we should sing praises to the Lord, you saints of his. Give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name for his anger. And that's again, which reinforces this whole sickness thing. Is but for a moment, his favor is for life. And weeping might endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. I think there's great benefit when God leans on you to straighten you out. Don't you think? My dad used to really yell at us. and I never thought he was right. But looking back, I'm glad he just didn't let me run around, do whatever I wanted. Sometimes I'm glad that he didn't let me do that. There's great benefit in being chastised. It seems that the Lord's day must start in the evening. You know, you read in Genesis, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So, It may take a while for the Lord to take you through it, but in the end, what you gain is far greater than what you lose. The the weeping can come for a little while. The anger is but for a moment, but the favor and the joy lasts. And I think that's a good father who would not allow you to stay out there too long, you know. He'll lean on you to bring you around. Now in my prosperity, David now so blessed, I said I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you've made my my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was troubled. So David was doing better. What happened? He became proud, self-sufficient. And David, who had just to acknowledge that the mountain or his rule had, had strength because of the Lord's work, had to admit that he was pretty much confident rather than the Lord in himself. But God was also good. His anger is but for a moment, but it is for a moment. And David found the Lord hiding his face from him. And David found trouble when the Lord kind of withdrew his hand. And so quickly enough, verse 8, I cried out. Learned my lesson pretty quick. I'm dumb. I'm not that dumb. <laughs> I cried out to you, Lord, to, and to the Lord I made my supplication. And I said, what profit is there in my blood if I would go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? And declare your truth. Hear, O Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, be my helper. And so David repented with his attitude and asked God to restore him to a place of worship and be his help and have mercy. And then David said, You turned for me my mourning into dancing. And you took off my sackcloth and you clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory can sing praises to you, and I will not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So it takes a series of things. You know, First, there's, first there's the waiting upon the Lord, and he delivers you. Then there's the healing. Then there's the pride. Then there's the brokenness. Then there's the worship. But the chastisement of God was to David for his benefit. He learned that it was so in God's favor. That's where you find life. So I hope you'll spend time with some of these psalms. I know that we go through them rather quickly. I don't really know... A better way to, to take you through them. If I did, I would certainly pursue it. But I think if we can look at them together and just get a glimpse, then the Lord may He use them in your life this week and in the weeks to come. Next week, Easter. No meeting next week. Two weeks from tonight, we'll continue. Maybe between now and then you can read the next five Psalms. And uh, I think there's finally one that isn't David's maybe, but you look ahead and see. Father, thank you tonight as we sit together for your awesome word, and especially these psalms that allow us to to delve in and to listen to and to examine the prayers of others, knowing what they went through, knowing what they've done, knowing what they longed for, knowing what you said about them, and especially with David, knowing so much that we might learn from his prayer life and his relationship with you. May we have, even as we read in Psalm 26 this evening, an open life where we can say, vindicate us, examine us, prove us, try us. Our minds, our hearts, may we have an open life. And may it be obedient because of your love for us. The loving kindness of God was before my eyes, and it kept me walking in God's truth. May that be our story tonight. May we have an obedient life. And then, Lord, may we have an overcoming life. May we not be found running around in the world with a bunch of people going nowhere, but rather may we go there to shine as lights and then run quickly back to the cover of the fellowship and the saints whom you have touched. May we separate ourselves from the world, but then may we separate ourselves unto you, be sanctified, strengthened, not only overcoming, but then overflowing as we come to praise the Lord and Go out to proclaim his word and seek in our life to pursue his glory. Father, may you do that work in us tonight. May we have a life that is obstructed when it comes to the world. Keep us from junk. Lead us not into temptation. But may we have that level place in the congregation of the righteous as you redeem us and are merciful to us. Help us, Father, we ask. And keep us close to you. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at MorningstarCC.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at patreon.com MorningstarCC. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot MorningstarCC.